What's up? I'm Will Fulton from Thrillist with some amazing podcast news. We just launched our very first podcast, Thrillist Best and the Rest. Every week, you can hear me and my amazingly talented colleagues talk about the best of the best in food, drink, travel, and entertainment. From the scariest movie of all time to the best hangover cure ever, listen to Thrillist Best and the Rest on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, you know, basically everywhere and anywhere you can find podcasts. Hi, everyone. Well, it's just me today. I'm sorry, all you Brian Goldsmith fans, but he'll be back soon, so don't worry. Meanwhile, here's what's cooking, literally. I just wrapped up an interview with Danny Meyer, who I love, and honestly, I have a little bit of a crush on him. He's a bit of a restaurant and hospitality icon. Sure, he founded Shake Shack, the global burger empire, but he actually made his name in fine dining many years before that. He opened his first restaurant, Union Square Cafe, one of my favorites, back in 1985 when he was just 27. So Danny and I actually decided to meet at the new Union Square Cafe. When I got there, the place was jam-packed full of diners, enjoying late lunches, a few cocktails. Hey, it's five o'clock somewhere. Maybe a bit of espresso. All served on crisp white tablecloths. There were even gingerbread houses by the entrance. We headed upstairs then to a private dining room for our interview. And yes, a little tagliatelle, is that how you say it? Our conversation covered a lot of ground, including Danny's famous approach to hospitality, why he's banned tipping at some of his restaurants, and how he gave birth to this new version of Union Square Cafe. We called this our 30-year-old startup because the original Union Square Cafe had to close after 30 years because we couldn't re-up our lease in the original spot on 16th Street. And we were just incredibly lucky to find a space within a stone's throw of Union Square and we reopened it a year ago. And and this is our birthday. And well, happy birthday, Union Square. And uh, let's talk about the restaurant business because, you know, so many restaurants open and close, Danny. And so many people want to do this for a living. And you've done it so successfully. Tell me what the key is to a fantastic restaurant that stands the test of time. I, I'm not trying to be falsely humble, but if I really knew the answer to that we would have opened a whole lot more restaurants over the course of 30-plus years. Well, you've I, opened I, a lot. We have. And if if you take out Shake Shack, which will open its 97th in the United States this weekend in my hometown of St. Louis, which I'm excited about, the fine dining full-service restaurants, we have about we have about 10 at this point. Wow. So that's, that's a lot. It's about one every three years. But especially when you consider that I didn't open a second one, Gramercy Tavern, until 10 years so it took 10 years to open a second restaurant. This year alone, we've opened five new restaurants. Wow. So, so the learning curve was was steep and slow. And can we just interrupt this podcast? Because somebody just brought in a little bowl of pasta for me, and I haven't eaten lunch. So I'm very excited. I'm not going to be here at a Danny Meyer restaurant. No, I'm not going to have any wine. Thanks, Danny. Danny just did the wine sign. I think that I want to kind of keep my wits about me and not get too woozy while right, I'm doing well, this I podcast. Hope, I hope we're going to hear a lot of happy clanging and slurping <laughs> as this well, pasta goes just down. tell me what I'm eating because— Listeners, I wish you all could smell 
through your smartphones because, or however you're listening to this so podcast. So that's homemade tagliatelle with amazing mushrooms. And it's, it's, it's kind of a good illustration of what Union Square Cafe is, which is nothing fancy or formal. And there's a great Italian word, which we first learned about from a hero of mine, Seth Godin. And he coined this, uh, or he coined this about Union Square Cafe, the Italian term sprezzatura. And sprezzatura was a term used to describe a painting style in the 1500s in Italy. And what it meant was that the technique that it took to make those paintings came across as being quite simple, and yet it was actually pretty hard to put together. And he he uses the word to describe Union Square Cafe, as well as what you're eating right now, the food, sprezzatura. There are so many restaurants and businesses that do the opposite, where they make a big scene, like, look at all the effort we put into this thing. And then you eat it and you go, I'd rather just have had a good bowl of pasta somewhere. And so what he's saying with sprezzatura is, what if you could make something that comes across as being simple, but is actually just really, really satisfying? That's what we try to do here. Well, I have to say, it's working for me, Danny. And what is it? What's the word again? Sprezzatura. This is really sprezzatura, baby. <laughs> I'm and enjoying Katie, it. Katie, <laughs> I also want to say that that we got so into thinking about that when we were reopening Union Square Cafe that I took our leaders on a trip to all the places in Italy that had first inspired me when I was in my 20s. And we did that uh, a little over a year ago. And we decided that we were going to bake our own bread here, which we weren't able to do at the first one. And we call our house bread. We call it sprezzatura. And you're going to taste some of that today. I'm excited to do that. Well, this is delicious. And I don't want to talk with my mouth full, but I'm going to have to. You know, you talk about Italy. And I know you spent a year studying abroad. You went to Trinity, the alma mater of my husband, John Molnar. Go Trinity Tigers, right? No, Bantams. Oh, Bantams, whatever. Go John Molnar, but, <laughs> yeah. but make sure not to go Go Bantams. Sorry, my daughter went to Trinity High School, and I think they're the Tigers. But anyway, you spent your junior year in Rome. And is that where you first became inspired to really become a restaurateur? I know your dad inspired you as well, and we'll talk about him in a moment. But what did the Rome experience mean to you and do for you? I had spent time in Rome working for my dad as a tour guide when I was 20. And I was responsible for picking up the group tours at the airport in the morning. They'd be all cranky and jet-lagged. And I found that... I'd be with these people for four to six days, depending on what the tour was, and I had this crazy neurotic wiring where it mattered to me deeply to take the crankiest person from day one and turn them into the happiest person by the end of the trip. So all the tour itineraries said, today we're going to go to the Cameo factory, tomorrow we're going to go to the so-and-so museum. And I just kept taking the tours to my favorite trattorias around town. Really? And I was getting a thousand. Screw the cameo factories? Well, the cameo factories, it's actually, basically, it's an opportunity for guides to get kickbacks from the cameo factory while you get this thing that you're going to put in a drawer and forget about for the next rest of your life. Yes, I have a few cameos yeah. like that, Danny. So I decided if it's okay for guides to be getting commissions, why not do it at trattoria? So I was getting paid a thousand lira per head of every tour guest that I would bring into these restaurants. And Is I was, that legal? It was completely legal. Um, what was not legal was these people would come home and they would rave about the trip. 
And my dad's office would say, well, what did you love about it? And nothing they were raving about was on the itinerary. He had sold them. So I almost lost my job. That's so funny. But anyway, after that, I went back, um, studied Italian at Trinity College, loved it. And Trinity has a campus in Rome. And we convinced our political science professor to do a special international politics class at Trinity. And so we studied Italian politics, studied European politics. Yes, we studied Italian. And yes, I studied trattorias. Um, Why didn't you go into politics, Danny, if you were there studying international politics? Well, after I graduated from Trinity, I wanted to be either you when I grew up. um, And I went to go look at journalism schools. I actually got a job at the NBC affiliate in Chicago, right out of college. Really? Working as a production assistant for the Sunday morning politics show. And on the very day I got offered that job, I was offered a job as Cook County Field Coordinator for John Anderson's 1980 campaign. John Anderson, who just passed who just away. Died. Yep. And uh, I decided I should take that job because it was a much loftier experience than I ever would have gotten with a Republican or Democratic candidate. Because he had, you know, as an independent presidential candidate, he had absolutely no infrastructure whatsoever. So I got an amazing education. And then I was either going to go to law school or journalism school. But you decided to go to neither? I decided to go to neither and start making pasta for a living. <laughs> That's so funny. And, and so why that sudden turn back into, or yeah, I guess to your roots of loving Trattorias or Trattorias? How do you say that? Trattoria. Trattoria. You got it. Why did you, you decide it. to go back into food? I'm glad it, you did, by the way, because really... I'm really enjoying this pasta. You want you... seconds? No, thank you. I'm good. I'm good. But you don't mind if I continue, do you? No, I, I'd be offended if you didn't. <laughs> but um, it's not really for me having gone back to those roots, because you have to understand, we're talking, um, I moved to New York in 19. 19- 80, I, I, my first night here was the night John Lennon was shot at the end of 1980. So not only was the city a very different city, kind of a scary time here, but restaurants were not really an accepted career choice for someone with a liberal arts education. It just was nothing that had ever occurred to me that in addition to cooking for my friends and for myself at home, that I should actually even consider for a minute going into this business. Well, the word foodie hadn't been invented yet, right? It hadn't. The word foodie completely didn't exist, but I would also say that the notion of a valid entrepreneurial career choice was just completely off the table at that point. In fact, I was embarrassed and afraid and ashamed to tell my family that I might do this. Really? A whole lot of other things I could have told them that they would have accepted a lot more quickly than this. Keep eating, Katie. I was going to say, but who has the last laugh now? I mean, I, I mean, obviously, you've just been extraordinarily successful. And I want to talk about sort of what you've learned in the restaurant business. You were 27 years old, I should mention, when you started Union Square Cafe in 1985. Yep. God, you were so young. I was. Where did you have the Capital cojones to, to, to think, I can do this? Well, one of the I think one of the great hallmarks of an entrepreneur, and you either are or you're not. It's not a good thing to be an entrepreneur. It's not a bad thing not to be one. But I think entrepreneurs are, they're upsided, meaning they, they're just incapable of seeing the downside. My eyes just couldn't see how this could fail. I knew and the other thing is, is that if it had failed, who would have cared? No one had heard of me. So in a weird way, the first time you do something as an entrepreneur, you only see possibility. I wasn't even thinking economically about this. I just knew it was going to work. And if it didn't, 
it would have been okay. With each subsequent restaurant after that, you got a lot more to lose because now you got a brand you have to think about. And so you got employees you got to care about. I should mention, before you opened Union Square Cafe, you worked at Pesca. Yeah. And you were an assistant manager. I was the assistant lunch manager. And uh, that's where you met your lovely wife, Audrey, who yes. was a waitress there. So Audrey uh, was an actress, um, which she still is. As a matter of fact, she just texted me saying she got a little role on Billions, which she's very excited about. Yay! That's exciting. So um, Audrey and I met on my very, very first day of work. Um, By the way, my interview at Pesca consisted of the owner looking me up and down for six seconds and saying, you'll do. That was my job interview. So on my very first day of work, I'm running down the steps to the reservation office because that was my first job to take lunch reservations. And this beautiful woman was running up the stairs with a tray of butters that she had prepared for lunch. And we literally locked eyes on the stairway. It was like, ding, you know, for about three seconds. She continued up. I continued down. I came home that night, and I said, I'm going to like this job. The next day, she was gone. And I didn't even know how to ask. Like, I started looking at, I didn't want to ask anybody. What happened to the lady with the butter? Right. (laughs) So I started looking at the schedules surreptitiously. She's not on the schedule for the following week or for the week after or for the week after. And I finally learned as I got to know people that she had gotten a a role in Guys and Dolls. I think it was in Indiana, if I'm not mistaken. And so she was gone. That was it. About five months later, I'm answering the telephones and there's Audrey and calling to see if she can get back on the schedule. And I said, yeah, I, I can probably help arrange that for you. So we kind of flirted for another five months after that. She had a boyfriend. I learned about that. We finally had our first date on my last night of work before I was going off to Italy and France to go cook. And uh, we've been married now for, we'll have our 30th anniversary this year. That's so great. Four kids. Four kids, yeah. Wow. And what do you think the secret to being to having a good marriage for that many years is, Danny, because, you know, you're busy. I'm sure that it's hard with your schedule, her schedule. I'm sure you meet a lot of beautiful, glamorous people. I'm sure Audrey does too, by the way, in her line of work. Audrey so, was kissing people on stage in two of her last plays. That's, were you like, wait a minute, why I no, oughta? I, I, w- I was more than that. In fact, once I w- went with my son and he like buried his head into my underarm during the scene. (laughs) What kind of kiss was it? By the way, I was just handed another bowl of pasta. Do you all think I'm running a marathon or something that I'm carbo-loading? That that one you definitely want to try. That that spritz a tour right there. That is is simple as Explain this. Well, what does it look like? It looks like like spaghetti with uh, marinara sauce. That's it. Can you hear me? Is With it the, yummy? Or I'm is spinning it... my spaghetti on my fork. Everyone, look, we have these sound effects. I remember the old days on the Today Show, you would take a bite of this, and then a camera would focus in, and you'd go, oh, my God, that's so good. I, You know, I used to hate when people would show me eating. This is the beauty of doing a podcast. Mmm. Mmm, mmm, mmm. That's delicious. I'm telling you all, she's smiling right now. That's really, really good. I don't think I'm going to eat the whole bowl. I should share with my producer, Gianna. 
It's only right, right? But um, So you're asking, what do I think the secret is? I, I don't know. I, I saw a great interview recently with a couple that had been married 60 years, twice as long as Audrey and I have been married. And the, uh, the wife had the best answer to that question, I, and I can't beat it. She said, the secret's very simple. I just always let him have my way. That's funny. <laughs> and I pretty much always let Audrey have her way. <laughs> now, we understand... Um, I, there's there's a great moment in our marriage that was not fun at the time, but it was a good one. Audrey's got a remarkable design sense. She's got really good taste. And we had just renovated a new apartment. This is probably uh, 15 years ago or 16 years ago. I made the mistake of coming home from the restaurant one night, and Audrey had bought these new soap dishes for our beautiful new bathroom. And I made a face at the soap dish. And I said, are those our soap dishes? And Audrey just looked at me with eyes that could kill. And she said, may I just remind you that this is not one of your restaurants and I'm not one of your employees. And I feel like I learned a really important division of labor at that point, which is that there's a lot to do at home. It's really hard work. Um, She's an incredible mom. She's incredible at, you know, balancing an acting career and, and keeping things moving in the house, which I couldn't do. I just don't know how to do that. So a big part of it is stay away from the stuff that ain't yours. And And, be grateful for the person who's taking care of it. And I think women probably, and some men who are listening to this, probably really appreciate your saying that because I think uh, oftentimes that kind of work, which is really being CEO of a household, is really undervalued. and, And you don't get a day off. That's true. You know, today, for example, before she went back for another audition, she was prepping one of our daughters to have her wisdom teeth out on the phone for an hour with another daughter who just fell down the steps at Trinity College and sprained her ankle, taking our dog in to the to the vet to have some kind of procedure, right? And I'm sitting here getting to talk to Katie Couric. So <laughs> I'm not sure who has the better deal on that, but let's talk about sort of your philosophy of the difference between service and hospitality. And I think this is so important. And you also talk about in your book, I know that you wrote in 2006 called Setting the Table, the intersection of leadership and hospitality. When you say hospitality, what does that mean to you? And how does that, how can that apply to all of us and how we live our daily lives? Well, I love the word. It's a complicated word, it turns out. But I learned a lot about this word in an odd way. 1992, Union Square Cafe, which at that time was seven years old, won the James Beard Award, the National Award for Outstanding Service in America. And amongst other reasons, I felt like a complete imposter picking up that award because we had always been taught that not only was service everything, but waiters are in tuxedos and they're making your pasta table side and all that kind of fancy stuff that we just never did. And I was like, how did we win that award? And then two years later, the Zagat survey comes out and Union Square Cafe had the 10th best survey service in New York, the 12th best food in New York, and the 65th best decor. And yet it was New York's third favorite restaurant that year. And I said, what are we doing that's making people react in a way that's greater than the sum of our parts? And I started thinking about this word hospitality and how it didn't exactly say the same thing as service. And I started 
looking into the word. And the word hospitality starts with ospis ospiti, which on one hand, it means guest. And on the other hand, it means host. And on another hand, it even means stranger. And on another hand, it even means enemy. And so you go, how do I fit together guest, host, stranger, enemy? Why are we talking about two sides of a coin? Why is that the root of everything from hospital or hospice or hotel, but also the root of the word hostility? So I did a bunch of research on this, and nowhere in there was there anything that had to do with service. And so the two things that came out of it for me were when people were lauding our service, what they didn't know is that they were truly lauding our hospitality. The service is nothing more than a way to describe the technical delivery of the product. Did we spill on you or not? Did we get the right food to the right person at the right temperature or not? Did we get your coat back or did we lose your coat? Those are all matters of service. Hospitality, on the other hand, has everything to do with how did we make you feel while we were delivering that technical service. And it hit me really hard, which is that we need to know what hospitality is. We need to understand that that's one of our core competencies, caring how people feel. It kind of went back to my early days as a tour guide. So it's what we think about. It's what we think about in all of our restaurants all the time. And then how does it impact life? I just think that especially in these years subsequent to having the internet, which means that there are no secrets under the, under the sun anymore. It used to be that you could be someone's favorite restaurant because you made roast chicken better than anybody else. But as soon as, as soon as we got the internet, the word got out immediately. Then you get pictures, you get tweets, you get Instagram, you get instant ability to plagiarize every good idea under the sun. But the one thing the, the internet hasn't done is to allow you to copy how someone made you feel. It's amazing to me that more businesses and more people don't understand this. You know, you go to a store and the salesperson ignores you. You feel demeaned and sort of dehumanized and marginalized and annoyed. And then you leave and then you have a completely different experience it, at another store where someone's super helpful and nice. And, you know, I just don't understand why businesses really don't don't instill these values. It seems so crazy, especially in quote-unquote service industry, uh, you know, situations. It, it doesn't, and the best thing about hospitality is it doesn't cost a penny more to do it. You'll never see a line item on a P&L statement or an annual report for a public company that says, oh my God, we got to stop being nice to people. It's costing us way too much money. We're going to take a quick break so I can finish my pasta and even lick the bowl at this point. We'll be back with more from Danny Meyer. This season, Crate and Barrel wants you to play matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match with your gifts, that is. Good design becomes great design when it's in the hands of the right person. No more random gifts. These are matches just waiting to be made. The host you know with the most, there's a platter designed for them. Someone else on your list into entertaining, we've got glasses for that. There's even a set of spoons perfectly crafted for your next dinner date. Match them up with the right person and you've done something truly gifted. These gifts were designed with you and yours in mind, so find the ones that were made for each other. Crate and Barrel. 
When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get Get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. That's butcherbox.com slash iHeart or use the promo code iHeart at checkout. And now back to my conversation with the one, the only, Danny Meyer. So do you give people who work here like personality tests? Because honestly, they are the ones interfacing with the customer. And I imagine if you have a a, a nice server, or is that what you would call it? Yeah. Yeah, a nice server, it means, it, and I can speak from experience, it, it makes all the difference in the world. It, it completely does. We don't yet have a, a way to measure something that we call HQ, hospitality quotient, but we're working on it. We know what the six emotional skills are that are always present in someone who's got a high HQ. And if you have a high HQ, like so many other things, I have no idea what my IQ is, but it doesn't really matter. And I'm not better. What I'm trying to say is that however we got our HQ, we got it. But for me, an HQ is a way to describe the degree to which it matters to you to make other people feel good. Well, I was going to say it also, you know, it comes from the top. You know, the fish smells from the head, as they say. And I think you set a tone at your restaurants of the way you want to treat people, whether it's your in employees, right, or your customers. And so I imagine, what do you do when you hear that that somebody had a surly waiter? If it's in one of our restaurants? Yeah. I flip my wig. I mean, I'm not, I'm not happy at all if I hear that. And it means that, look, if whenever we have a guest complaint, and I've seen many of them over the course of my career, the first thing is I'm grateful that they cared enough to let us know. It's not fun if they do it in a public way and, you know, you're airing your dirty laundry on Twitter. But if they do that, that means that they're really angry. But I'm actually grateful because it means they're holding us to the same high standard we're holding ourselves to. And I'd rather, if, if, it ha- if the thing happened, I'd rather know about it than not. Most people are good enough to write directly. So uh, almost 100% of every complaint I've ever gotten, even though it says it's about the overcooked steak or the undercooked salmon or the oversalted risotto or the weight between the first and second course or the, you know, whatever the complaint is, it's almost never really that. It's almost always somewhere along the line, we did not make people feel like we were on their side. And at the end of the day, hospitality, we forget the Latin and Italian, it comes down to two things. Did you feel like we were on your side or not? And you can make it even simpler with one preposition, for, did you feel like we did something for you or do you feel like we did something to you? It's that simple. So when you go to a store and you feel like someone's being surly, do you think, Feel like they were doing something for you? No. So 
if our service is good and it's the timing's right and all that stuff, it still doesn't mean we did anything for you. That's what you expect. Service is all the stuff you should expect from us. Sometimes we fail at service, and, and really good hospitality can actually overcome that. And So hospitality trumps service, basically. What does it do? Trump's service. Oh, yeah, I guess so. I'm, I'm dying to ask you a, about a few more buckets of, of, of things. And one, of course, I think before I ask you about Shake Shack, which I'm so interested in, and some of our listeners are as well, tell me about this no tipping policy. You know, I know that that's been harder to implement than you thought. Um, and I guess, according to some people, has had mixed results. True. Um, so you decided to charge customers 20% more for their food. Is that right? The real and eliminate answer, tipping? Well, let's start with the last thing you said. We decided to eliminate tipping. And when you eliminate tipping, what you're basically saying is that the menu price covers all of my expenses with enough money to make a profit. Right, including your employees. Including the formerly tipped employees. Because right. when you go to a restaurant that accepts tips... It's a bizarre, mostly American cultural thing. And we've got this pact. Our restaurant industry has had a pact with the public forever, which is the menu price is going to include your food, the tablecloth, the flowers, the rent, the chef's salary. But you're going to have to pay separately for the person who brought you the food that the chef cooked. That won't be included in the price. And it's... It's a system that, as as we've watched, it become harder and harder and harder for really talented people to live in a city like New York and be able to pay the cost of living here, especially cooks, because they are not able to share in tips by law. And we have meanwhile seen that as menu prices have gone up year after year, like if you looked at our 1985 Union Square Cafe menu prices, You'd want to eat at that restaurant every night of your life. Um, and it, what is a tip? It's a multiplier of menu prices. So escalating menu prices, escalating tip percentage. Waiters are doing pretty well, although it's somewhat dead end because you can't afford as a waiter, a server, to take a 25% pay cut and become a manager, which is how your career would actually advance in hospitality. Because mm -hmm. tipped employees often make more money even than managers do. But meanwhile, cooks are making almost exactly what they were making in 1985. So we said, enough of this. Let's change the system. So you're right. It's been a challenge. It's been very challenging to get the math right because um, you did ask, did we just add 20%? Not exactly. Some things we added more than 20%. Some things we added way less than 20%. Let's take a beer. Everyone knows what a beer should cost. We may not want to add 20% to the beer but we may be able to add 25% to the salmon because maybe we were undercharging for the salmon in the first place. So the challenge mathematically is how do you get a price on the menu for guests who are used to seeing prices that they know they're going to have to add 20% to? How do you get people used to seeing a price and figure out what would that price be minus 20%? It's really hard for people to do that without getting whiplash just the minute they open the menu. And then how do you have enough money so that the servers who were used to getting high tips can now get an hourly wage, which approximates that? How do we have enough money to pay our cooks 20% more than they were making? 
And how do we have enough money to promote our starting managers so that you can actually have a career path if you're a server? So, so it's really, complicated. Really, really, really hard. Um, Are many restaurants doing this now, Danny? Or um, not really? Are they saying, uh, there, he's the guinea pig and we're not doing that? Yes. By and large, that's that's the answer. I've had a huge number of people come up to me and say, thanks for running through the barbed wire for the rest of us. And I've, I've looked, I show my arms. I'm not all cut up. It's not really that bad. Part, no regrets, though? I have no regrets at all. And um, and I wouldn't do it otherwise because I just think it's, this is transparent. And I and I think we're we're at a point in time where Tipping is now being seen as the anachronism that it is. Let me ask you about Shake Shack because, uh, wow, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> it's so huge. How many of there? How many of them are there now? Um, this weekend we'll be opening in my hometown of St. Louis, number ninety-seven in the U.S., and then there's another seventy-five or so internationally at this point. Wow. So who knew? Who knew? It and started sort of as a food cart, right, Danny? It started, well, the whole thing was kind of a just completely unexpected story. It started off as an art project. We were helping to take the lead with the restoration of Madison Square Park. And unlike Union Square Park, which has this fantastic green market, Madison Square Park didn't have an open piazza. But what it did have and what it does have are these beautiful walking paths with 19th century statues. And and one day we said, why don't we join all these 19th century statues with really good contemporary art? We said, this is our front yard. This needs to be beautiful and it needs to be safe. So we turned to the Public Art Fund, which is a wonderful organization here in New York City, and they curated, they brought in a sculptor from Thailand who came up with this crazy idea of having taxi cabs on stilts with a working hot dog cart aside. And they needed somebody to operate the hot dog cart. He was trying to make a political statement that everyone in the world has either had to drive a taxi cab or was able to afford being driven in one. Everyone else in the world has either been able to afford to buy a hot dog or had to be the guy selling one. So I didn't know anything about the artist, but we said, we'll sign up. We'll do the hot dog cart. And we were pretty slow back in those days up in in our private dining room at 11 Madison Park. And so we said, we'll do Chicago-style hot dogs. I love them. And I figured, what a great way to test out hospitality because a Chicago hot dog has eight classic toppings. Katie's the person who likes everything except mustard. And Johnny's the person who likes everything except cucumbers and could, and so, lo and behold, every day we would have 70 or 80 people waiting in line. Peter Jennings covered it. Tom Brokaw covered it. Dan Rather covered it. It was kind of like, this is just a little hot dog cart. 9-11 happened right after that summer. Obviously, the city went into a deep depression in every respect. And the following summer, even though the taxi cabs were down, the community begged us to bring back this hot dog cart. So we did. That was 2002, 2003. They begged us to bring it back a third year. We did. And at that point, I said, this is crazy. Why don't we turn this into a permanent thing? And so we raised the money philanthropically to build a kiosk 20 feet by 20 feet. We called it Shake Shack. The deal was we would give it to the park. We would own the business. The park would become our landlord so that 
a percentage of every dollar sale would go right back into the park and hopefully create a little revenue for the park. No one knew that this was going to turn into a viable business, much less a public company. People went crazy, right? They did, and it was not for five years that we opened a second one because it was never meant to be a business like this. Today, uh, so that was in 2004. Now here we are 13 years later with, you know, well over 150 around the world. And, And I think most importantly, if you go back to the original vision, not only is Madison Square Park more beautiful and safer than ever, but that little Shake Shack, 20 feet by 20 feet, is now creating a million dollars in annual revenue for the park. And I just, like, that's a great story. It is I wanted, a great story. I want to do that one again somehow. <laughs> I'd like to do that, too. Well, we had a lot of people sending questions uh, that I think were related to Shake Shack. So this is from someone from your hometown sent us a voicemail. Let's listen to what the question is. Hi, I'm a former St. Louisan, and no Danny Meyer is too. Growing up in St. Louis, eating out at Steak and Shake was a great treat for my brother and myself. I'm wondering how much influence the Steak and Shakes of St. Louis had on Danny as he developed the Shake Shack. It almost seems like an updated version to me. Thank you. Well, the Steak and Shake had a huge impact, as did Fitz's Root Beer Drive-In, um, as did Ted Drew's Frozen Custard. I was going to ask you about Ted Drew's and Absolutely. the concrete. Absolutely. And um, Crown Candy Kitchen with their malts. And I think the thing that was just, I don't know, so powerful for me was this. The only way when you're 16 and you get your driver's license in St. Louis and it's, you know, the 1970s, that you you get independence is to get in your car and go to a parking lot somewhere and hang out with your friends. And that's the kind of places we did it at. And and I realized that now it's 2004 in New York City. New Yorkers don't get in their car and drive around. But what if we could use a park, a public park like Madison Square Park, almost in the same way that I had grown up at places like Steak and Shake, using the parking lot where people get to hang out with people. And I realized that what fast food had done, you know, between the happy days era um, and and today was they hijacked the experience of people being with people. The whole point was get it quick, cheap, and then get out of there. Right, and drive through. And And we said, well, okay, we didn't invent hamburgers or hot dogs or milkshakes, but what if we could make them a little bit better but then return the experience of – people getting to be with people. And in the most convoluted way, the long lines at Shake Shack gave people an opportunity to be with people. And and it just, I don't know. I'd, it just works. I, I wish I had come up with that idea. <laughs> it, we got lucky. You know, um, I love St. Louis, by the way. I dated a, ma- a boy from St. Louis at UVA, but I don't know if we dated or he dated a friend of mine. I can't really remember. But he also... <laughs> is kind of behind a St. Louis tradition. His name is Joe Switzer, and Switzer's licorice, licorice right? Of didn't the pl- didn't like a street smell like licorice because of you the bet. Switzers? Oh my gosh. How many people know Switzer's licorice? That right? was that was like the best. That takes me back to Spicer's 5 and 10 where I'd go for Switzer's licorice and baseball cards. St. Louis must have been a really fun place to grow up. But so many people I know I really like from St. Louis. Like Bob Costas is from St. Louis yep. and 
my friend Boo Kistner, who I went to UVA with. But anyway, I digress. We have another question. You know Boo Kistner? Yeah. You I, do? I think Boo Her went, real name is Eileen. I think she went to the same school I went to. Really? John Burroughs, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, that's so funny. And I also dated a boy from St. Louis named Buzzy Lane. What? I think I know him, too. I think he went to St. Louis Country Day School, he did. where I also he went. He did. See? Come on. He was nice. We can play this game pretty well here. Isn't that funny? The name game. All right. Here's another question from Daniel on Twitter. He says, my family of four loves Shake Shack, from their burgers to hot dogs to the fries and the cheese sauce. But as a parent, I'm a little concerned about the number of calories they are taking in every time we visit. Are you thinking on expanding your menu to include a bit more healthier options? Amen, Daniel. I want to know the answer to that question. And do you want to start a new fast food restaurant, which I know you call Fast Casual, with me, Danny, that would really serve much healthier options? Uh, so great question. And I, I think the the most candid answer is that People don't like to eat healthy food? <laughs> no, I think people do increasingly um, care about eating healthy food, and they should, as do I, as do as do my whole family. Because you're very, I, I should say, people can't see you, but I'm sitting next to you, and you're quite svelte. I know you take good care of yourself. I would weigh 400 pounds if I did what you do. I don't think you would, because I, I think that, that good, f- so let me just start at the beginning. Shake Shack is not a health food restaurant. And I think that anyone who says, I've got a great diet, you should eat cheeseburgers and cheese fries and milkshakes every day of your life, would get laughed out of town. On the other hand, I would say that I'm not at all interested in living a completely monastic, um, pleasure-free life. And there are times when I want to have a good steak or a good cheeseburger. And I think what's important is when you do that, when you do make that choice, let it be something good. And I think one of the things we take very, very seriously at Shake Shack is how do we source the ingredients? We made a big move to use beef that is completely all natural, which in this case, sometimes that means nothing, but in this case it means 100% hormone, growth hormone-free and 100% antibiotic-free. Um, every single ingredient we use, we have our fries are now non-GMO. We care deeply so that, yeah... You have calories. I would say, here's the secret. Only have a half of a milkshake, but make it a coffee milkshake and do it with French fries and only do it, only do that like every now and then. The burgers are really not that high in calories. Next thing, you asked a really good question. What are we doing? First of all, here's what we're not doing. We're not going to become a full service restaurant where we say, in order to make sure Katie and, and whoever cares about this, in order to make sure they come every day, let's add salads and raw fish and all, all kinds of know, things. A grilled chicken sandwich or something? So here we go. So we added a, <laughs> we added a fantastic chicken sandwich a year ago, um, which is killer if you've never tried it. Is it grilled? It's not grilled. It's fried. <clears throat> we are, we're playing actually right this minute in Brooklyn with a new grilled chicken sandwich, so you can try that, and we'll see how people react to it. If you need a taste tester, give me a call. We get a lot of people <laughs> who ask us, when can we, we love your shroom burger. We have a mushroom burger. It happens to have cheese in it. And so increasingly we're hearing from people who are vegan saying, is there something you can serve us other than just French fries? We love your French fries, but that's the only vegan thing on the whole menu. And so we're working on that as well, and we'll see if, if, if someday – we can come up with something that is craveable. And my metric for Shake Shack are, are two things. 
it needs to be something that is plausibly something you would eat at a shack, right? So you're not going to get a avocado salad. I'm sorry. You're going to have to go to Union Square Cafe for that. But let's say, and, and metric number two is it has to be craveable. So the Schroomburger made the menu because it looks like a burger, it eats like a burger, it's mushrooms and cheese, and it's something that as a carnivore I would even crave. So I want to come up someday, hopefully, with something that is vegan and craveable even to, to omnivores. Having said that, I mean, I do think there's a big hole in the market, and I think you and I should discuss this after the podcast for a healthier, fast, casual restaurant. I because I agree. always say to Howard Schultz, name drop, I know, but I know him a little because I've interviewed him a bunch of times, like, have some healthier options at Starbucks. They've started to, but I think, like, even have a healthy brand muffin that is 100 calories, I would get it all the time at Starbucks. It would make me come to Starbucks. I agree. Now, we've just invested in a company called Tender Greens, which is a California-based company. They'll be coming to New York um, early in 2018. Because you've also invested in Sweet Greens, I know. We've all, yep, in Sweet Danny, Green. Danny, I know too much about you. <laughs> it's, it's actually scaring me. <laughs> so, now, I don't think that either of those two awesome places are what you would call fast casual. They're a little bit more than that. Um, and I do think you're right. I think there's there's a place for really craveable food that you could eat three times a day and feel good about yourself. So we have to wrap it up, but I want to dish with you for a minute. Um, who was your favorite customer you've had here at one of your restaurants? I mean, who did you, you've met everybody, Danny. Well, who, obviously you. Oh yeah. Well, okay. Other than me, but who did you meet that just blew your socks off? Boy. So many, which is pretty cool. But I, I have to say my childhood hero, who um, was Bob Gibson, the pitcher for the St. Louis Cardinals, um, when he came to Union Square Cafe, and I, I was at the game where Roberto Clemente lined a shot off of Gibson's shin, and Gibson got up and pitched to the next three batters with a broken leg. Um, you want to talk about courage. I saw him the year he had a 1.21 ERA. And the, the fact that that guy who I looked up to as a little kid was eating dinner and drinking wine in my restaurant and let me sit down and talk with him and later became an investor in our barbecue restaurant, Blue Smoke. I mean, that's that's pretty cool. Doesn't get much better than that. It didn't. How about somebody who maybe people who aren't baseball aficionados would know about? Uh any celebrities, any movie stars, TV stars, that kind of thing? I mean, I don't even know where to start. Do we, just throw out one that just you like, remember thinking, wow, that's cool. I mean, we've had President Obama um, eating at Mayolino, and how cool for him to stand up in front of the entire dining room and put his arm around me and say, I would not be president if it hadn't been for your grandfather who schooled me in zero to three early childhood education when wow. I was when I was running for state senate of, of Illinois. State Senate, not even US Senate. That was pretty cool. It's also cool to have Michelle Obama come in. But it was pretty cool to have the Bush daughters in the restaurant. We're we play to all sides we play to all sides of the aisle here. Oh you're such a diplomat. I will say How this in, it's kind of amazing to me that in uh, 32 years of being a restaurateur, um, 
I don't know that I've ever served Donald Trump once. So I was not all ask politicians, you about that. Not all politicians care about food. Um, if Donald that's for Trump, sure. if Donald Trump came to your restaurant now, um, I know you would be ever the gracious host you are. Do you? I don't actually. You tell me. <laughs> of course we would. Of course we would. It would. It would be a very very awkward situation. Because um, I'm afraid that um, our staff members on a, a number of levels would would look askance at me. Uh, you know, one of the, the most important parts of our business is caring for the people who work here. And it's true that we do not take a political test of the people who work in our company. And we have people who are probably huge Donald Trump fans who work somewhere in our company. But I also have a sense that if he did dine in the restaurant, people would be incredibly uh, professional, and they would also probably be somewhat uncomfortable. Well, Danny, thanks so much for letting us come and showing us, what is the Latin word for hospitality again? Ospis, ospiti. Ospis, ospiti. Well, you showed us ospis and ospiti. So thank you very much. Thank it was you, really Katie. fun to talk to you. Before I thank our production team, I was so remiss in not breaking out in song during my interview with Danny Meyer. You know when you have a good answer to an insult or something someone says to you like 30 minutes later and you think, I should have said this? Well, I'm thinking I should have sung this. Food, glorious food, hot sausage and mustard, while we're in the mood, cold jelly and custard, peas, pudding, and savaloy. What next is a question? Rich gentlemen have it, boys, in digestion. <clears throat> Excuse me. That was from Oliver the Musical, and the reason I know the words is I sang it at our sixth grade assembly with a bunch of other people. Please do not worry. Anyway, thank you so much to our production team. You know their names by now. Gianna Palmer, our producer. Jared O'Connell, our audio engineer. Nora Ritchie, our production assistant. Where was Nora today? Editing the other shows. She was editing some other shows. Gosh, we keep them busy, busy, busy here, people. Then, of course, Allison Bresnick, who always sticks the landing on social media. <laughs> A little gymnastics jargon. Thanks, Gianna. Emily Bina over at Katie Couric Media. And I would like to say thank you to Beth Tamaz, my assistant, who was here accompanying us on our interview today and who helps me out in so many ways every day. And a big thank you to Danny Meyer and the team at Union Square Cafe for letting me invade their fine establishment to tape this episode. Brian and I are the show's executive producers. Mark Phillips wrote our theme music. And remember, you can email us with your guest ideas, questions, and feedback at comments at currentpodcast.com or leave us a voicemail at 929-224-4637. Please keep it clean, people. Find Brian on Twitter at GoldsmithB and you can find me if you search Katie Couric on just about every social media platform. Now, we'll be back in two weeks for our year-end episode with tennis champ Maria Sharapova. In the meantime, enjoy the winter solstice. I'll talk to you when the days are getting longer again. Thanks so much for listening, and I will tell Brian you all said hey. Theodore Roosevelt explored uncharted Amazon territory, helped modernize American football, and won a Nobel Peace Prize. I'm Erin McCarthy, editor-in-chief of Mental Floss and the host of History Versus, a new podcast that shares the inside stories behind some of history's ultimate fighters. 
Season one tackles Theodore Roosevelt, who went head-to-head with seemingly unbeatable foes like corruption, time, and death itself. Listen and subscribe on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.